Hi and welcome to Insecurity, a podcast about computer security built from the ground up. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. You can contact us by sending an email to feedback at in-security.org or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. Hey, buddy. How you doing this week? I'm doing good. How are you this week? Yeah, that's a misnomer, isn't it? So how was your princess cruise, your Disney cruise? It was wonderful. I was treated very princely. Nice. Yes. And it was nice to get away from this brutal winter we've been having out on the east eastern time zone. So, uh, so weak, huh? Do you say, uh, how was my week? Cause it's been, seems like it's been almost a month since we've recorded. It feels like it, but it hasn't. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What else is news? What else is news? B. What's your new hobby? Is it a new hobby? Relatively new. It's my second time doing it. So I'd say it's pretty new. It is brewing beer. Polar bear club swimming. No, that didn't work out. Bre- brewing beer. Yeah. Brewing beer. Nice. What uh, what kind of beers have you been making? So there's a bunch of different ways of brewing beer. The kind of brewing that I've been trying out is the one that's directly from the grain itself. And you make like an oatmeal out of the grain. And then you add the yeast to that and you store it for like three weeks and let it ferment. And then you add some honey to it or some sugar to it, and then you distill it in and put it in bottles. Not Is distill the right word? I don't believe so. Not I don't di- think you actually have a still. No, no. What's the... Um, distill is when decant. you boil out just the alcohol. Right. So you decant it through a siphon. You siphon it off, and then you put it in the bottles. Yeah, last time it turned out all right. This time it's a different recipe from a different place. So we'll see how that turns out. And I have more in the mail so that as the bottle conditioning happens over the next two weeks, that actually adds the carbonation in the beer. I can start working on my next batch. Nice. Yeah, it's fun. Hey, do we have any follow up this week? Actually, over the Christmas break, there was some interesting things uh, that had come about. There was uh, there was a couple events that had happened recently that made me think about this podcast um things that we had covered in the past such as so for one thing microsoft released a patch recently that fixed a vulnerability if a malicious image was served up to you it could trick your browser to execute code on your computer's behalf And this is something that we had talked about a while ago back in the operating system discussion. Because it was a problem that had existed a while ago, when your browser is tied directly in with your operating system, these things can occur. A font that you see might have a problem if it's rendered in the kernel, you know, could have some disastrous effects. Right. So in in the case of this vulnerability Yes, it was a TIFF image handler that had been patched something like five years ago that someone found another way to exploit the vulnerability and were able to execute arbitrary code on your computer, which is not something you want people on the internet to be able to do. That's quite the vulnerability. 
Yeah, that's one of the worst kinds that you can have. There was another thing that happened recently that we wanted to bring up over the Christmas holiday or sorry, over the New Year's break. Was it Yahoo was compromised and was serving up compromised ads again? Right. Yeah, I believe you're right. I believe it was Yahoo. And this goes back to the thing we were discussing before. Somebody's serving up malicious ads. The ad can convince your computer to go and download some malicious software or whatnot. We put a link to it on the Risk on the Catternet episode, an article from the Washington Post with a follow-up article that had said they think that if you are in the U.S. that you are safe. However, it was other countries that were compromised. Hmm. But at any rate, it's still an interesting news article. So the the write-up that I put is, in relation to malware ad serves, I, discuss, I think we discussed a little in Robotnets. Yahoo ended up being compromised and feeding up malware-infected ads over the New Year holiday break. What do you want to do a show on next week? Uh, we have to wrap this one up. Oh, haven't we? Did we have a topic for this week? Yeah, we're going to continue on with the um, most common web app vulnerabilities. We had handled a, a few last time, right? We did the cross-site scripting, SQL injection, force browsing, cross-site scripting, SQL injection. That's pretty much what we handled with a little intro for people to understand what how websites work and how JavaScripting comes into it. So this time I thought we would talk uh, a little bit more about it Having laid that groundwork, there's a concept that I had touched on around sessions. And I think it merits a deep dive into what a session is and how they're made up so that people can understand what the objective of a session is and how people actually go about exploiting that to take over your session. Okay. So sessions it is. Yeah. And then we'll get into, you know, the bad things that people do with those sessions. But yeah, right off the bat. So when you sign into anything, so let's, let's make a scenario. Okay. Let's make a scenario that you're doing some online shopping for Christmas, something that was near and dear to my heart last month. I did a lot of shopping on Amazon and I went to the amazon.com website and I typed in, um, I, I logged in as myself and then it, it was understanding the context, which I had, I had some stuff saved for people within within a shopping cart, all of this happens under the session. It has to remember who I am so that the shopping cart will prevail throughout. And at the end, if I want to purchase those things in the shopping cart, then I just go to that, um, you know, shopping cart icon and then buy. And then it'll ask me to log in again to confirm. Or, you know, if you go to a website that's got a forum on it, there's a session there too, but we'll keep with the online shopping one for now. Okay. So when I log in to Amazon, it prompts me for a username and password, and then it's able to remember who I am, even though I'm browsing through the website, clicking on different items, reading descriptions and whatnot. So how it does that is it maintains a, a state for me so that every time I click on a, a next page, I don't have to log in again and again and again. Anytime I click on add card, I don't have to log in again. So there's something that the web server is doing there where it'll assign me a session ID and it'll give that back to my browser through the web server. 
so that it remembers that I'm doing stuff on behalf of my user account. And that's the way for the server to track me. Basically, you don't want to inconvenience somebody with logging in every time they do something mundane. You only want people to log in to establish the session and then at, at the end to you know execute something that's sensitive. Maybe you'll ask them to log in again. So for example, log into Amazon shows me stuff that I have put aside in my wish list, stuff that's in my shopping cart that I've, as I go through and I start adding stuff to it. And then at the end, when I go to actually buy the items within my shopping cart, then it prompts me for the password again to confirm that it is myself who's, who's doing this stuff. It prompts you for the password again at the end? Yeah. Well-designed websites do that. This is to assure that, you know, I'm actually the person who I said I was. And it's not like maybe I logged into my computer and walked away and then somebody else took over that session, right? When it comes time to purchase stuff, they really want to be sure that it's actually me because, you know, they don't want to have things ship out and then get the credit card company coming back saying, no, I never bought this, that kind of stuff. So that's at a very high level sessions. Sorry, I'm just trying to think of my last Amazon experience and whether or not I actually had to sign in again when I wanted to leave. When you wanted to make your purchase, you did. Yeah. If you want to just leave, then you can just leave, right? And the stuff in your cart will most likely expire and not retain their state. But next time you go back, it'll say, here's the previous things that you've looked at, the next last 10 things or something that you were looking at. That is based on your session state. Your session is actually something that's returned back to you in form of a cookie from the web server. Did we talk about cookies last time? No, we haven't. You want to talk about cookies? Cookies is generally just a file that gets written into the cache, which means the web browser, usually when it is browsing for you, instead of reloading pages and images and stuff every single time, it will back up regularly accessed things. So for instance, when you go to Gmail, every time in the top left-hand corner, you've always got that Gmail logo. So that it doesn't need to load that every single time and waste those valuable kilobits, then you've got it backed up on your computer. So when it tries to access that part of the web page, it'll look, it'll see that it's there and it'll automatically just load it from your cache or from your backup. Now a cookie is a file that gets written in there and essentially it can contain any, any information that you want written to the cookie and that can be called back to the server. So the server can call out call back for the cookie, see if a cookie exists, if it does, get the information contained within it. And typically these things contained within a cookie are little configurations that you as a user of the website have made customizations if the website allows you to do so. So things like your language is English. You want maybe a blue color for for this section if that allows you to set that. You know, these little client side things so the server doesn't have to remember all of your individual preferences right that's you and then you just say through this cookie file yeah i i want these settings presented back to me so for instance if you have a login you can always have that saved into your profile information but then once you've actually logged in it'll just write the general information 
usually if it's a good site or has best practices, it's not going to be storing any private information in there, but you know, but it could, it could literally store anything in there. You can write whatever you want in there. Right. So there's the ability to store sessions within cookies and there's the ability for a session to be retained even after you shut down your computer and log back in some like a forum that I go to I've selected for it to keep me logged in forever so it's just a session id that's stuck in the cookie file and next time I go there I don't even have to log in it just pulls that session id back up and it says okay this is max and it's I've chosen to allow it to do that because I don't care if somebody else goes in as me Right? It's just a minor inconvenience to say, oh, someone went in as me, reject that session and create a new one. But that's usually on your specific computer because it's written directly into your own cache or your own backup. Yep. So the web server allows me to state how long I want it to keep my session alive for. And on this one particular form that I'm thinking of, I just say do it forever. But I have the option of saying, do it for 30 minutes. And then after 30 minutes of it elapsed, my cookie will no longer be valid for that session ID. The server will actually reject that session ID and say, no, you have to log in again to be able to keep proving that you are who you say you are. When you write a cookie, originally the web server is supposed to put a time to die on the cookie, basically a lifetime for that information to remain valid. So in a situation like that, you can set it so that the information will remain valid forever. However, if you set it so that automatically the information becomes obsolete within say half an hour or 24 hours, then you have some web pages that will do that on purpose. Uh, like for instance, when I worked at a university, we had that on our university website so that you could literally walk away from a computer and 10 minutes later, your login information would time out and the website would actually prompt you saying, Hey, your session is about to expire. Are you sure you want to continue? At which point you say yes. And it restores it for that duration of time. And that's in case people leave the browser open. Yeah. I, I just wanted to touch on that and make sure that that was clear because you said you for a minute, as far as setting the cookie settings, you meaning the person who makes the web server, like the, the web page, I mean, right. So cookies are typically set by the web administrator and there are these special files that can only apply back to that website that created them. Correct. So if I had entered in, information like my first name, last name, address or whatnot. And that happened to be stored in a cookie. Right. And I go and I visit another website, that other different website can't call the cookie for site abc.com that had my personal information into it. That's built into the browser where it's saying, Oh, you're only allowed to request the cookies for, you know, site xyz.com instead of abc.com. That being said, if somebody has local access to the computer, they can pull up the cookie files as long as they have read access to that directory and read the contents of it, which is why you don't want to put too much sensitive stuff in there. And also using either encryption or 
really ab- abstract stuff is useful. How do you mean? Well, because you can basically you can put a hash or something in there if you want, and then you can just compare the hash with whatever you're hashing out. Right. Right. So then all it is is just a string of letters and numbers that is generally meaningless to most people, especially people who don't have the specific algorithm that you're using to generate the cookie. Because you just pull it back and then you can calculate that and use that however you want. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you again in that case being the web developer. Right. And so to the everyday user just kind of blind to this most people don't know that even their web server has cookies then they'd get hungry or something um but these things are happening in the background and and there's a bunch of other stuff that's happening in the background as well like last time when we had discussed about the forcible browsing or forced browsing we had said that you know these things could go into the url bar you can manipulate the url bar through this technique Right. And, and when we talked about uh, cross-site scripting, we also talked about, you know, the potential to post data through, through a button that submits it back to the web server. Sometimes that might end up even in the URL bar. There's other ways where between the browser and the server, communication can happen invisibly to users, just like the cookies. It's these things called parameters. So, as we discussed, there's the possibility of having variables within the form that gets set and transmitted back and forth. And it doesn't end up in the URL bar. It's just passed between each other through these. What is it? It's not get post, is it? I'm not actually certain. I know that PHP can do it. You can start a PHP session and then you can end a PHP session, but you can run it for ages and then it doesn't actually show up anywhere that you've got a session going. I'm not really sure how it gets transmitted. So session negotiation itself is something that happens within the header, typically, of the uh, web page request. So it's something that me going to the web browser, I actually present the session ID that I have. And then the web browser interprets that, ties that back to my account and says, okay, so this identifier is Max instead of Matt. My point, though, wasn't around that. It was around the, uh, the, the forms that I fill out, the buttons that I click, the um, checkmark boxes that I tick off, the radio buttons that I select on a website. When I click on a button, that doesn't end up in the URL bar unless it's a, I can't remember if it's get and post or there's some other form um, submission that's allowed. With get, the form data is appended to the URL, and with post, the form data set is included in the body of the form and sent for processing agent. So get is the one that sends it, uh, appends it to the URL. Okay. So then the post one is the one where it's just kind of invisible. There's no, it's not evident that it's happening between the browser and the server. That being said... There are plugins for browsers that will actually allow you to see this. And as well as if you're sniffing the the wire in between the two conversations, you can become a man in the middle. You can actually see the, um, the information that's passing between as long as it's not encrypted and see that, uh, that these parameters are being set. 
So there's something that sneaky people can do is parameter manipulation, right? Where you have this plugin in your browser or you're a man in the middle and where it might say that I want to buy one TV, you know, I changes that one number to a 10 and suddenly things have changed a lot, right? If that ability is there to manipulate the parameters, it can have some bad effects. That's why these confirmation pages are very handy to have. Right. So I just wanted to tie that back to the previous discussion around forced browsing, where we said that you could change parameters. You could uh, maybe make an action be to delete something or to overwrite uh, a web page if there's some sort of interactive component to it. So those are things to look out for as well. You don't want to expose those methods, the the programmatic interfaces to allow that to happen if somebody's going to manipulate the parameters that are sent, being sent back and forth. Those just shouldn't be options. Those are things that should actually be um, scrutinized. You should never really trust what you're getting from the user of your website as a, as a web developer. W3C recommends the get method should be used when the form is indempotent or causes no side effects. So if you can leave the information in the URL and there's nothing specific that the form is going to do, like it won't be able to, actually it says here, many database searches have no visible side effects and make ideal applications for the get method. If the service associated with the processing of a form causes side effects, for example, if the form modifies a database or a subscription to a service, the post post method should be used. Right. But even then, there's the ability for people to manipulate the parameters that are going between. So if you're using the post method, even though, you know, it's best practices by the W3C, there's still the ability for somebody to change those settings. So you have to be cognizant of that. You have to be aware that somebody could change those settings and to maybe prompt the user for a confirmation of these things going back and forth. Also, don't put sensitive things, don't depend on the user for sensitive things like prices of items, right? So if I were to buy a big screen TV on somebody's website, right, don't make the person send back the information for how much the item costs. Make that a lookup of the database and say, okay, this is how much the item's costing, no matter whether the person sends back that it's going to be for cheaper or not. Is that a thing that's happened? That is definitely a thing that's happened. I don't think I ever would have thought to implement such an ineffective method. And believe yeah. me, I'm the king of bad practices. I try each and every single <laughs> we discussed one. discussed last time. Well, no, I'm just constantly <laughs> just try doing it. on, see how it fits, yeah. Well, the other thing is that I was developing for, I don't know, making it all up as I went along for years now. Right. Without any sort of classical training. That's why I managed to get every single one of these. Yeah, these. that's why they're common vulnerabilities, common mistakes, right? Um, yeah, so you had asked about how sessions are, are handled between the sites. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways that sessions can be handled. Some people will, will send the session ID in the headers and sometimes they'll be within cookies, and some 
horribly designed websites will have them right in the URL bar, right? Where we discussed last time, if you can change the, using the forced browsing technique, you can actually change who you're logged in as because sessions aren't maintained properly. Some of the vulnerabilities that allow people to hijack other people's sessions. So there's that one that I had said where if you can, if it's in the URL bar, you can change it by forced browsing. If the sessions being handled, so a lot of websites, when, when you log on, they'll be over like HTTPS, right? They'll be using an SSL certificate to encrypt the channel over which you're communicating. So Hey, if I'm, there's a man in the middle, they can't actually capture your username and password, right? So professional sites do that. Not things like our WordPress login, but, you know, things that are super important. They actually do that. One thing that's actually kind of interesting, going to the forest browsing, uh, tying it in with cookies, cookies themselves, because they can contain legible information can be susceptible to a very similar attack as to forced browsing. I don't know what it's called, but for instance, a cookie is generally just saved as a text file on the computer, which means you can open it up with a text editor. And if it shows your user ID is user one, two, three, four, five, then you change that to one, two, three, four, six. And at that point, if it's made that poorly, you're now the next time you go there logged in as the next user. You just stole my thunder. I was just getting there. Oh, suck it. <laughs> Actually, no, that, that's, uh, that's still a good point. Um, and this is why you want to do something like hashing it, right? And make sure that when, it's, when you're receiving it back from the user, that it's not just clear text that they can manipulate, that there's some sort of computation that has to be done on it to make sure that, you know, that can't happen. But the point that I was making was that, if you encrypt the the session to authenticate an individual, right, you take all of that care and you put it into protecting the username and password so somebody can't intercept it and use it later and take over that person. And then if you say, okay, that's fine for username and password, now I'm going to do the rest of the communication over regular web traffic, regular HTTP, not using the SSL certificate to encrypt it anymore. Well, now you're just sending the session information over clear text and you're not encrypting it. So someone can just take over that session, right? That That's a common problem with that. So you don't want to have clear text session IDs. You want to make sure that at all times, the session ID that you're communicating back and forth are also sent over the encrypted channel. So once you've logged in, you stay logged in to the secure server. Yeah, you never downgrade the communication back I mean, people have this weird concept that, you know, encryption is compute- computationally intensive and it's going to take all this extra power to be able to, you know, send every web page over this and images are going to take all this extra computing power. That's not the case. The way that the way that SSL is created is the really heavy duty part is the actual negotiation of the first part. That's that's the heaviest piece is that communication that negotiation back and forth to make sure that somebody in the middle can't decrypt it and maybe sometime later we'll get into the details of how encryption works but to once you've established the channel 
maintaining it is lightweight for computers, especially these computers nowadays, like servers and stuff. There's so much horsepower in them. It just is negligible. So always make sure that you keep the sessions going over those encrypted channels at all times. Cool. Ray, once they've logged in, don't just use your SSL as a login server. Use it as a server if you're going to have someone log in. Yes. And just keep it going that way. You can have public stuff, stuff that you don't need to protect over standard web. As soon as somebody logs in, if it needs to be protected, it needs to be protected the whole time. Another interesting thing is that uh, session IDs, now that I have the ability to understand a session ID, another problem that's commonly done with session IDs is just making them predictable, right? Like your user double, 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 or zero, 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 one, your user zero, 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 two. You don't want to have an established pattern like that, right? Because when somebody opens up the parameters within their plugin and they go, oh, I'm just going to change my session number and it'll take over for somebody else. You want a very wide range of session numbers. You want them very much randomly generated. People have come up with these different pseudo techniques where they like, you know, the plugin, I don't know, like the date when an ID was created. Well, you've just removed all of this extra space for something that's predictable. If somebody can determine that there's a date in the middle of that, right? So you don't want that. You want sessions to be completely random as, as random as a computer can make them a wide array of characters that can be held within that session ID. So you want it to be like, you know, 64 bits of session ID so that you can't just ramble through all of the session IDs to be able to hijack somebody's session, right? You want to make it difficult and you don't want sessions to last for too long either. I think actively forcing them to time out is good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's one very clever uh, attack and it's called session fixation, right? And this is mostly used for phishing type of attacks where like I send an email to somebody saying, Oh, uh, your order, here's, here's an email that I actually received your order for Costco. There was something wrong with it and you have to log into the Costco website to be able to fix whatever issue you had. And it seems innocent enough, right? There's a link there. I click on the link and I go to the website. Now, with this attack, this session fixation attack, the attacker actually created a session first. They got the session identifier. They know what the what the session code is, but they haven't logged in yet, right? It's just this blank session. And through the email, they'll email me that actual session ID in in that link that I click on. And then when I go to the Costco website, they can actually take over the session as soon as I log in because they know the session ID. Right. So this defeats the randomness. How do they know when you've logged in? 
Well, because it's time sensitive, it's, it's a phishing thing. So they'll like spray it across many email addresses and hope to take over somebody's session. Okay. Right. So, I mean, all phishing attacks are basically, you know, I'm trying to convince you to go and do something on my behalf, right? Whether it's buying a random prescription or something like that, or whether it's, you know, I want you to log into this website so I can take it over. So how do you get around this? Well, first off, don't click on links, right? That you receive. That's very common sense. But as a web developer, how do you make your site resilient to somebody doing that? Resilient to, I don't know, how? Do you have best practices that we can follow here? Yes, absolutely. The technique to avoid session fixation is you tie the session to an IP address. So when somebody first creates that session, you can make it on the web server side so that that session ID is only valid for that IP address. And if somebody sends that off to, you know, the next, the other person, when they try to use that session ID, it's coming from the wrong IP address and it's rejected and they're forced to get a new session ID. Or another technique that's actually a possible is... And, you know, it's not either or you could do these in conjunction, but what you can also do and what people do like Amazon is they change the session ID after authentication. So in the online shopping scenario that I was saying, right, I can browse to my heart's content. I have a session ID for putting things into my shopping cart, viewing items so that it can remember stuff and market stuff to me across all of the other websites that I go to that have an Amazon little ad in there. Right. The but when it comes time to make my purchase, when I click on the purchase and it makes me log in again, when it makes me log in, I get a different session ID. So if at any point in time between my browsing of multiple tabs and going and doing other things, that session is not the same session as what. I'm actually going to do when I enter my credit card. That's fairly clever. Yeah. This cat and mouse game, man, it's a, it's fun to keep up. All righty. There's one last topic that I want to cover today. Sure thing. Have you ever heard of cross site request forgery? Cross site request forgery. No. What is that? So remember how cross site scripting is someone making me click on a link or something going to a website and the link actually is reflected back at me to make my computer do something on, on their behalf. Yes. So that was one of the techniques for cross site scripting. Well, cross site request forgery is actually very different. Um, but the name is similar. So when we were discussing cookies, we said that another website couldn't read my cookies to a different website. So site ABC's cookies couldn't be read by site XYZ, right? Yep. That is my understanding of cookies. So cross-site request forgery gets by this by now saying, instead of me trying to get the cookies and then 
me going to that site presenting those cookies because I can't. What I'm going to do is I'm going to trick you as a computer to do something on my behalf to that third party site, right? So me being XYZ, being a bad guy, I'm going to trick you to go to website ABC on my behalf. And then when you connect to me, you'll load up maybe a, a flash ad or an image or something else that's linked back to the other website, you can then establish a connection to the abc.com website and me as the attacking site can actually get in in between on that. So by creating a connection to the other website through something, uh, page loads or includes or server side includes, that can potentially allow a connection that would then allow you as a malicious host access to the cookies that are stored on that person's computer. No, I'm, I'm not even trying to get the cookies anymore because I know I can't. I'm just leveraging your system to connect back to that abc.com on behalf of me. But so the, the abc.com knows that it's coming from you but I'm attacking you through a website that I've lured you to come to. Right. So I'm kind of skipping off of your computer, making you do these things for me as abc.com. We don't want people to be able to do this. So this is why we set timeout sessions lower, right? The, this whole attack needs that I, that you have somehow logged into abc.com and that while your session's still active, I've convinced you to go to xyz.com and then I've leveraged something on this malicious website to link back across. And this is where the, you know, forever logged on sessions could, could come back and bite me, but it, it's such a low value site to me that I don't care. It's just, worth the convenience of not logging in every once in a while when I go back to it. Okay. So there's a few other techniques that can help defend against cross site request forgery, which is CSRF in the show notes, which you can access at in dash security.org slash EP zero one two. Right. So you can add actually a random number value that accompanies each response back from the server. And then it gets echoed on the next request to the server. And this is like, um, this is like a, a session counter, almost like the, the TCP IP window session, right. That we were talking about before the networking one, we're actually, you know, the web page will actually say, okay, the next request is going to be, you know, this random number, send it back. And I know that, you're the one that have always only been communicating with you that no one's actually sent anything else on behalf of that because it would ruin the session. If it returns something that it's not, then it signs you out. Yes. And then there's also the thing that Amazon does to prevent against that. It'll ask you to reauthenticate when it's time to do that sensitive credit card transaction. Hmm. This is also a protection against this cross site request forgery. Well, it was a good break that we took. Um, Fortunately, going forward, we're going to try and uh, pick it back up now that the holiday seasons are over. Yeah, and 
I also, you know, if we're ever going to take another break again, one thing I want to do is be a little bit more transparent about it. So our listeners aren't left in the clutch wondering what's going on. So we'll, we'll try to do it every week. If there's any reason why we can't do it that week, we'll post a notification on the in-security.org website, or maybe even put out a little podcast saying, sorry, life happened. Can't do it this week. All right. I like the miniature recording idea. I think that's kind of cute. Yeah, I saw somebody else do it once and I thought that was uh, a nice touch. Right. Awesome. Uh, other than that, anything else you want to add for closings? Uh, just next time, why don't we cover something about hardening computer systems? I think what we'll do is, we're is. Gonna, is that, is that going to be more in depth? Is that going to be more heavy? Yeah, we're going to, we're going to talk uh, a little bit more in depth, a little bit more technical about uh, how you go about doing that without going you know into the weeds on any operating system in particular all right let's try that so next week hardening until then you have yourself a great week thanks buddy you too